Hello world, welcome to another episode of The Deep Dive with Eyal Shai. My guest today is Gary Schwartz. Hi Gary. Hi. <laughs> It's great to have you here and thank you for coming on. Um, yeah, when I contact you about uh, what should be the entry point to this podcast, it was quite hard because you're a man of many talents. But I think uh, one thing that I'd like us to start on is maybe a, a sentence that I heard you saying in an interview you did at a book signing event, and you'll mention your book too. And it's, the sentence is, humor has pretty much carried me through everything. And uh, humor as a concept is not something which is yet to be discussed on this podcast. So Yeah, I want you to, to start in any way you see fitting on how to introduce this concept, its importance to you, and maybe some early examples of what it carried you through and how. Wow, wow. That's so interesting because, yeah, I think humor was my sort of passport to being accepted by people. Um, you know, and I think The book that you're referring to is called The King of Average, this book that uh, I had the idea when I was 11. Um, I suffered from terrible self-esteem. I had uh, parents who, you know, didn't really want to have children, and they were unhappy, and, you know, they uh, basically, you know, gave us the message that we were big burdens to them. And um, so not experience the typical growing up with love and affection and la 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 all of that so i felt you know terrible about myself and but i had a conversation with myself about um well i'm not that terrible <laughs> i looked at the world and i said you know there's people a lot worse than me you know they could you know what what's wrong with me what's right with me and i said well i'm I'm not awful. All right. Maybe I've already accepted the fact that I'm not wonderful. And mm -hmm. uh, then I thought, well, yeah. So then I said, well, maybe, maybe I'm just average. Maybe I, I, I'm, I get seed C's in school and all of this stuff. And I said, then I thought to myself, what if I became the most average person who ever lived the most average person in the entire world? And that, of course, made me laugh because it was a paradox. And mm, right, I, the most. Yeah. yeah, the most anything makes, you know, negates the fact that you can't, you, you, you're not average. You're the most mm -hmm. something. So that chuckle, that, that stayed with me. And uh, so, and I think humor comes from that feeling that you're on the outside looking in. I think most humor comes from the fact that you can take a wider view because you're not busy trying to become a, to conform with everything that makes you feel safe around you. Mm. So, um, I, uh, you know, I grew up watching television and I loved, you know, the, the, the witty cartoons of Rocky and Bullwinkle and the Warner brothers cartoons, which were basically written and animated by these old vaudeville guys, you know, And uh, so I developed this ability to make people laugh and be funny. And 
that 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 they like that and then that the effort of doing that kept me from feeling bad about myself although on the inside i was still feeling bad so humor became my shield as a kid mm -hmm. and my way to have friends yeah it's it, it is so interesting because it seems that there are two distinct uh things to do with humor one is really as you mentioned the, the kind of self-awareness part where self-awareness makes us able to look at ourselves and you know laugh at what we find right the little inconsistencies quirks and and so yeah. on and um, and then the other thing is really making the other people laugh, which I think is more rare, maybe. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in that. Um, was it something that you consciously experimented with, or was it just more of a talent that was there that you just stumbled on? Uh, how methodical were you about kind of making it an art. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm trying to really think about that now because like I told you, I grew up really my first best friend was watching television and, you know, I love to be entertained by those cartoons. And so, and I also watched a lot of things like the three stooges and, you know, I was one of the baby boomers. So early television was, scrambling for content and they took <laughs> old 1930s and 40s movies and the old three stooges reels from the 40s and put them on tv just and i just watched everything so mm -hmm. i was exposed to a lot of television and i think i started imitating what i saw mm. you know and then you know when i got to school and i kind of overcame my shyness and I was trying to make friends, the easiest thing to do was to, to repeat something I saw on television. And of course, television and even really then, and even now is a common denominator. So you could feel estranged, but, and feel nobody likes you and ostracized. But if you can say, Hey, did you see this on TV? Yes. Oh, here's, here's, here's how, let me, let me repeat it to you. And then if mm -hmm. I got a laugh, so I started making people laugh and felt accepted. And, mm. and that was a pleasant feeling that, you know, so of course, you know, you, you keep, you keep doing what makes you feel good. Um, yeah. And of course, you know, it also stops you from feeling bad, you know, I think people yeah, it's, without it's, humor suffer much worse than people with humor. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a point that was made by uh, Viktor Frankl in his uh, Man's Search for Meaning. I think he pointed out that, you know, in in um, Auschwitz and other, other concentration camps in Europe, uh, basically the, the highest correlation, the strongest correlation was between people who used humor uh, the correlation between survivors and people who actually used humor. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in the, in the making other people laugh because as I reflect on my life, I have a few distinct memories of nights among friends when we were drinking and I was killing it, right? I was being funny 
and just on a roll, right? And it was such a, a great feeling, but uh, my identity is not that of a, of a clown exactly. And going back to it, I realized that I must have felt really comfortable to begin with. And that's very different from um, actually doing comedy in order to feel in some way safe. And it also makes me think of the time that I met a very famous Israeli comedian, one of, one of the most famous um, at a personal or a private event. And it was like the bar mitzvah of his, of his son or something like that. And once I got, it, I got to know him personally, I realized that all the funny stuff he, he does is almost, is, is almost compulsive. It's not that he elects to do that. It's just, it seemed that he was very anxious and to relieve that tension at any cost. It's like, that was his thing. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, yeah, how, how you feel around that place of like feeling safety and doing comedy. Well, I started that way. You know, I was hypervigilant, uh, always on the lookout for people who, you know, didn't like me because of who I am or because of who I felt I was. So if I could, I could spot, you know, something that would distract them from what an awful person I was, <laughs> uh, the humor would distract them, make me feel good. And yet the motivation to begin with, you're right, is uh, I'm, I'm hiding, I'm, I'm wearing a mask. Uh, and the mask is the acceptable part. And it's interesting uh, because uh, Alice Miller, uh, uh, a psychologist, wrote a really interesting book that was one of the themes of my book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Mm -hmm. And she talked about the um, fact that when you are abused as a kid or even prisoners, and this, I guess, comes into the Stockholm Syndrome, in order to survive, you construct a uh, false self, a self that you feel is acceptable to your tormentors. Mm. And um, that false self you, allows you to lose your true self. And you spend a lot of time building this wonderful facade of a happy-go-lucky, witty, jolly, humorous guy. And everybody thinks of you as that, and you get by with that. And that stood me in good stead uh, because, uh, yeah, like you said, you're compulsively doing it, uh, which means that you're practicing all the time. And, of course, mm. you get a 1,000 hours of practice or 10,000 hours of practice, you become a master at whatever you're trying to do. Um, and I have known a lot of very compulsive, very unhappy comedians, um, but the nice thing for, that happened to me was the fact that I got therapy and that I met, I think, one of the wisest, most insightful women in, in, the, in the world, Viola Spolin, who helped me get a new philosophy of life. And both of those things I had to reintegrate and accept and, and find a way to love that little unloved child inside me, mm -hmm. um, which is not a funny process. But right. when, you, when I did have that 
acceptance and that breakthrough and that uh, uh, self-love that I never got as a kid, I, I never lost my humor about it. Now, it's interesting because I heard John Cleese one time say that he uh, became less funny when he went through therapy and discovered that he was more at peace with himself. Uh And I thought, wow, that's interesting because I still think he could be a very – he still is a funny man, but he thinks he's less funny. I just think maybe he's less driven to be funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I don't think that it's probably not the case that he forgot all all that he's learned, right? But no, actually, before you brought up John Cleese, I was actually going to ask just that, is if making peace with yourself doesn't, wouldn't cause you to, um, yeah, to be, to be less driven to do that, just that. So, so it's, it's, well, it's a blessing, and it's very lucky that you, that you haven't lost it. It's it's wonderful. Well, I'm not. Uh, I don't have to make you laugh every second in order to <laughs> distract you from what an awful person I really am. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and here, and here, you made me laugh. Um, yeah, I'm also interested in like, were you using a self-deprecation because I found that in my life to be kind of a technique that you know, through humor, if you shine the light at yourself and you see something ridiculous, that also is, it can take out the the sting from any future kind of attack, right? But I wonder if, um, like for me, I never lacked confidence, but I wonder if that can also be actually getting to a point where you self-deprecate but it still hurts. It's just that you'd rather do it to yourself than somebody else do it to you. That's an. And I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not something that you've experienced, but it's just a no. Thought that but came you know, to my you're mind. you're getting into the the whole idea, believe it or not, of of I think there's a whole area of comedy of, um, dealing with Jewish humor. Mm. The Jews, an oppressed people, have developed, and there's an un common number of great Jewish comedians who use self-deprecation masterfully. Mm. And I don't think that they feel terrible, but the world views them as terrible. So they disarm, you know, it's humor Mm -hmm. is that weapon that disarms the hater. Right. Yeah, I guess it's just something that they stumbled on, but it makes sense now that it's, you say I it. think it's a survival technique. And, you know, I think, you know, some of the uh, my favorite comedians, you know, all of the old Jewish comedians and Jewish humor has always been, I think, a staple, you know, uh, and culturally, I think it's let communities survive. Yeah, yeah, that's well, what I'm saying. And the pogroms of Russia, you know, uh, I I don't know of any, I don't think that the humor, you know, made it through the Egyptian enslavement, but there probably were some <laughs> funny slaves. Probably. <laughs> there had to be. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Um, if we were to go back more to the process of healing from this place of having no love for oneself, because this is basically the, the reflection of just what was going yeah. around you. Could you share a little bit from the process itself? Because I find it amazing that uh, working with uh, Viola Spolin was so, um, so healing. So yeah, transformative. So, it um, really is. And many people right. say that the work can change their lives. The work, her work and her philosophy is very transformative. First off, it deals with play. You have to be in a state of, of playfulness in order for you to access that intuitive self that you're connected mind and body to who you truly are when you're playing. Even Plato said, I can discover more about a man in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. Mm -hmm. And so play behavior is a natural learning technique. Mm -hmm. We play to learn things. And the nice thing about what she did is she extracted the idea that there's no failure and there's no judgment in playing. When you play a game, even if you're not successful at the game, you've had a good time playing the game because you're bringing your full self to the activity without um, censoring yourself and without kind of looking over your shoulder at yourself to see how you're doing. You mm -hmm. can't do that. You can't have that division because it's that division that keeps us earthbound. So play is the spectacular experience that you have. And when you play a game, a game is just a problem that you are attempting to solve. And once you solve that problem, you've acquired the skill that the game is asking you to have. Mm. So she developed all of these games around becoming better on stage. Mm -hmm. And she, she taught children the disciplines of the theater, not improvisation per se. She was t teaching them how to be good actors without telling them authoritar authoritarian style, do this, do that, do this. So she would set up a situation in a game where they would discover that's is what they need to do in order to solve the problem. And thus the side benefit is you acquire that skill, the oh. skill of communicating, uh, the skill of making sure that you're visible to the audience, um, all sorts of skills that she broke it down into 200 different games. Wow. No, so I never realized, I mean, this is a fresh way for me to look at it as not so much working in a well-defined genre. It's not about making you good at this, but go a level beyond and just generally be a good communicator on stage that's able to um, touch people, you know, and it can be in a funny way. It can be through putting up. Uh, well, and the humor from her work doesn't come from intellectual funniness, which many people misunderstand. They think that, mm -hmm. oh, you have to be clever to do improvisation. You don't. You just have to be spontaneous. 
And it's huh. the spontaneity that causes the surprise and laughter. And as a matter of fact, if you are cleverly trying to manufacture things to say and do, first of all, you've isolated yourself from the game. And so imagine if you're in a football game and you're, you know, five people are running down the field and you, you, you just, your goal is to get the ball into the net or something like this. And you say, Hey, I hear, here's something that, you know, and then you do a little dance while you're doing it to, to, you're going to get creamed. You're, you're going to lose the focus mm-hmm. of the game. Yeah. So anything <laughs> that distracts you from the game is comes from Viola says comes from your head, from the, that, that ability, to, you know, that pre-thought, uh, you know, right. Right, which is a which is a powerful tool, but we have to be able to yeah. um, to know when not to use it if we actually want to experience right. anything like like flow, right? Exactly. So, so that's why a lot of comedians, mm-hmm. when they enter into Viola's work, are completely stymied because they, although they're clever and fast witted, um, they're not they're not playing the game. They're playing their own game, which is look at me compulsive need to make you mm. laugh. Otherwise I'm no good. Right. And yet if you're playing the game and thoroughly enjoying the game, whether you're playing a small part or anything, but you feel part of the game and you're so involved in the game, that's why people go to games because vicariously they get that same joy watching the unfolding of an unknown event. Mm-hmm. You want to go to where you don't know things. And this was what Viola taught me. You want to go to where you don't know. And because that's the true area of creativity. Jokes are stored memories that you can repeat over and over. And the only person to laugh is the person who doesn't know the joke. Mm-hmm. And that's enough for some comedians. But for me, it got very boring. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, you're talking you're talking with a podcaster who never writes down any questions except for maybe the first one. So, um yeah, I I um yeah, I'm I'm really appreciating the more I learn about improv, the fact that it's just it's it disguises itself as a sort of a of a different art or something, but at its core it's it's a it's a it's a technique for for healing and for learning something very profound about how to to live well and that's what I got out of my conversation with Paul Valencourt, who's an improv teacher who's been on this podcast um yeah, I'm interested if we went to like your first person account of actually Feeling this transformation from the inside, uh, if I understand you correctly, it's the understanding that you can engage in something that is not so focused on the result, but the process. And there's something about that um, that gives it the emphasis because ultimately some of the uh jokes or even if it's even if it's like more dramatic or dark improv some of the things are going to fall flat right and not achieve their goal and then you but basically the goal is not to make mm-hmm. something funny 
Right. It's never to make something funny. That's the goal of the comedian. Right. So, so I'm saying you, but I mean, you don't get the, the response necessarily every time. Uh, and then you learn that really nothing really bad happened. Right. If I understand. Not only nothing really bad happens, but, um, you know, yeah, you can run into, uh, nothing goes, nothing happens. And two things can be true of that. Uh, when nothing happens, one, you know, you haven't focused properly on the game or some part of your head got involved in trying to solve the problem. Um, but you're trying to go to where you've never been before. So to me, the ultimate improvisation is when both you and the audience are surprised at the same time by what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened with a lot of improv, unfortunately, is they want something to happen to the audience, but they want to be in control of what happens to them. Mm. And yet the best moments of improv are when they accidentally fall into that other space. Mm -hmm. okay. But mostly improv uh, these days, since Viola Spolin left uh, and uh, the second city in Chicago back in the 1960s, um, they, they've gone to the comedy routine. They've gone to the comedy of it. And mm -hmm. they use the process to discover the comedy, and then they solidify the comedy in a sketch. And then mm -hmm. it can be repeated. And then once you repeat something, it can be sold. Mm -hmm. And that's why improv became <clears throat> so popular. Um, Viola was all about, let's attempt this every single night. And her son, Paul Sills, was about, let's attempt this every single night to go where we don't know. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. And Viola created a structure and Paul Sills created a structure that gives you the best chance of it working just as in a game. Because you have players on the field, but you also have coaches on the side yelling at them, urging them to try this, try that, try this, to get to go beyond themselves in a game. And that's, those are the most exciting games, obviously. And you've been to games yeah. where it's like, okay, so they played. But the reason you go to a game is because you don't know what's going to happen next. That's, that's the, that's the excitement. Right. And from the little that I know about uh, Viola from uh, reading, I understand that there was actually an emphasis on not um, making things too cerebral, right? Or not going into the places no, the where you work. Yeah. This is where we store knowledge. And, by, you know, uh, knowledge is... She said, well, she has a great phrase. She says, information is a very low level of learning. Mm -hmm. You know, and, but schools teach retaining information, to retain and regurgitate information. That's what a test is. They test you what you remember. She said, memory is the past. You can, you know, mm -hmm. um, what you want to do is, you need, you need the intelligence, but you don't need knowledge. Or the knowledge 
has to be connected to your physical self in the act of playing in an unfolding of an unknown situation where you're trying to achieve some other focus. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Einstein says the same thing. It's not that he was good at math. He was good at transcending math and applying it to, you know, an unknown, an unknown. Mm -hmm. And he was always searching for the, you know, what is not yet known is the most, that's why you go exploring. I've never been there before. Mm -hmm. What's that feeling? Oh, everything is new. Everything is exciting. That's what you want. That's, that's, that's going to give your life vibrancy. That's going to nourish your, yourself. And it doesn't come from knowing art history and knowing everything about what Da Vinci did, but going to behold what you have not yet seen and don't even know you don't know. Right. So now I see this angle to the whole story, right? Where maybe as, as children and especially if we've had some, uh, adverse childhood, um, if either events or processes happening to us, right? I see that the, that the healing that happens in improv is really around not being afraid of the unknown. Like basically yes. this is welcoming the unknown this, with, uh, uh, with, with, um, uh, with eager anticipation. But mm-hmm. if you're afraid of the unknown, which so many people are because of the way we're brought up in our culture, not knowing what's going to happen next produces anxiety. You need to predict. Um, yeah. But you can only predict what you already know. So you're going to predict outcomes that, you know, you're going to manufacture outcomes from your fear because you, we retain fear. We retain yeah. pain. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that, you know, at least in my life, I find that um, we are so busy thinking about desired outcomes, as you say. And the, the real lesson for us is that we don't know the outcomes. We can't predict the future, but we can actually develop a sort of competency of living within the world. And once we understand ourselves and how... We can navigate the world. Yeah, just it's the edge is, is not as, as sharp. That's kind of what we're facing. And we begin to uh, be able to breathe deeply, right? To relax, to feel at home in the world, if that makes sense. Whereas before, um, the world might seem to us to be this scary and dimly lit jungle exactly. where a tiger might bounce at you. Yeah, there's all of that. You know, that's see, and that's because you're not in the present moment. You're either in the future predicting or you're in the past remembering. So you can, mm-hmm. you know, the only time that you can be in the pr- state of play is when you are present to the moment. And when you're present to the moment, fully present, it's, it's just so exciting. And it, well, meditation does it and so many other things do it. 
but play does it with your whole body and your whole mind and uses every aspect of yourself. And Viola says, when you play a game, you become part of the whole. You're adding Mm -hmm. your part to the whole and you are participating in a larger thing. And that creates a community that creates a unity that creates a harmony. Um, when you're acting from selfish instincts or from other motives, you're standing outside the game and saying, how can I insert myself here and there? Mm-hmm. And you're not playing the game. You're, you're trying to join in on your own terms. And it's very lonely. Uh, you'll find a lot of comedians are lonely people because they compulsively are still standing outside trying to get the acceptance from others that they are not giving themselves. Wow. Yeah. And I'm interested in, in your feeling about improv after having done it for so many years. Um, because it seems that the, it's really unclear to now define or the maybe the the purpose of improv like is it more is it more therapy to you or is it more about no, about no, it's uh, not therapy it's the uh, art or it's uh, but it is therapeutic oh it it's it's very yeah it's very healing and it's very fun and i think you know it gets closer to the purpose of life which is to enjoy whatever moment you're in. I mean, you look at, you're saying Viktor Frankl, you know, he was in the worst possible of circumstances. What allowed him to endure it? One of the things Mm -hmm. is being able to be in a community with people who share a common goal. And one of them is to amuse each other, to transcend their circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of, loops back to the to the first um element of comedy of the one where it helps you i think develop a self-awareness because you can see a world where you are just uh one element of it embedded within a greater whole and then for me i always thought i i used to hate the winter okay which really shouldn't be legal in Israel because <laughs> we only have these three months of winter to get all the water we need for the whole year. And if it doesn't come, we're screwed. Yeah. So it should be legal. And today I'm telling people, it's like, if you complain about a day of rain, I don't care if it's your wedding day. I don't care what you had to do. You should welcome the rain and celebrate yes. it. But I used to, to hate it because of the uh, dreary skies and so on. Um, yeah. And, I, I remember a major shift that happened in my thinking was when I gained enough self-awareness to look at the world from up high, you know, and we know this from astronauts going up and then looking back at the earth and saying, wow, everything is like there. Yeah. Guys, it's like, we can't be fighting. It's not like there's anywhere to go, right? And being able to get the, the bird's eye view of things and then if not being happy for myself because it's dreary out, 
and having enough self-awareness to recognize that this is just me and I can be happy for the trees. Yeah. You know, well, find you're doing it, find your own a, point of view mm -hmm. shift. You're, you're shifting your own point mm -hmm. of view to, to change your personal, to change your present state of mind. Mm -hmm. Because you want to be in the moment. You're saying, you know, and if you're, oh, because if you're, if you're groaning about it, you're in the past, you know, bitching about how you, how it used to be. Or, mm. or you're, you're, you're kvetching about why, 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 sh why, how, why should it be like this? Why can't it be like that? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Instead of just going, huh, this is it. And, you know, like my book, I'm, I'm going back to my book now for a little pitch mm -hmm. here. Great. Um, <laughs> my book uh, is about a young boy who feels terrible about himself um, who decides he wants to be the most something and all he can think to be is the most average. And he leaves his current world where everything is awful. And he goes into this magical land that I named the realm of possibilities. And in the realm of possibilities, it's a landscape of self-worth. There's Lake Superior and Lake Inferior <laughs> And there's the uh, unattainable mountain range with Mount Impossible, the tallest peak. There's a little village called Epiphany. Um, there's a, a, a spa called Serenity. There's all of these places, you know, um, that are that are labeled emotional states to be in. Mm. There's Accusia, the land of blame. Um, and he meets on his way a, a, a scapegoat named Mayor Culpa, <laughs> who is a, um, a, a professional scapegoat. He will al not allow you to take the blame. He, he, he needs to take the blame. And then mm -hmm. he also meets a professional optimist uh, who has in his pocket a small little man who is a professional pessimist named Killjoy. <laughs> and they travel these roads together to become try to become the king of average, which is an actual commonwealth. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's run by, it's run by a mediocrity. I use all of these puns, you know, <laughs> that's good. I can see, I can, I, I know that it says that it's inspired by the phantom toll booth and I can definitely yeah, it see is. it. <laughs> it is exactly that. And, and then, you know, when I was writing the book, uh, one of the things I learned as a writer is you need an overarching theme of the book. One sentence that says everything is, is being guided toward this one idea. And mm -hmm. I had to think about it because I never thought about it before. I just thought about all of these funny circumstances. When I finally finished the book and then had to rewrite it, I had to find the theme of the book. And the theme of the book is the search for love and acceptance. Hmm. Here's an unloved boy who doesn't accept who he is, who won't accept who he is, or won't accept his mother's view of what he is, and finds his own self-worth. And this is what we all have to do. And what Viola's work allowed me to do was to take all of the skills that I've acquired and put them to use in a, in a higher purpose. And for me, I mm. was lucky to discover that my higher purpose is teaching, spreading the work, spreading this idea, 
that to me is endlessly fascinating and rejuvenating. And it's, I can get tired of telling the same jokes and making, you know, once I make you laugh with the same joke, I got to find a new audience. So imagine Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. For me, I, I can, I can give my perspective on this. So I'm a tour guide and, Guiding tours in Israel, you can you can do it in several ways. Like one very common way is to um, greet people who are who have just come on a on a ship and and docked at the at the bay, and now we're going on a day tour. So you get on the bus and then you go to the same old places, and you have just one day, and it's fifty people. You're not going to know any one of them. So for all practical purposes you're not really guiding anyone because there's no interaction, right? Um, And then very early on, I came across this um, older guide. So I was just finishing up a day of work, which was fascinating. It was with the uh, Ministry of Agriculture and the Ministry of Finance of the government of Zambia. So I I had this uh, fantastic couple of days with them. And I had finished work in Nazareth, which is a very important site for Christians from all over the world uh, where Jesus grew up and and where his mother was uh, given the message that she's actually burying the child of God. And I had finished my day of work and I arranged with my dad that he's going to pick me up from this bus stop and waiting there, I met an older guide who was just like clearly not happy with his life. He was just like, um, ah, poofs, like they got me to go with the Poles again. So I don't think he's racist against Poles or something. What he's saying is like they don't leave good tips, basically. Yeah. So people to him were not people. They were just like money, money machines, right? Um, and I remember I, it was early in my career and I just said, whatever I do, I have to make sure I don't become that guy. Right. <laughs> and then, and then I basically vowed to myself to do it in different way, which means go on tours with few people over a number of days. So you get to meet people. And then while yes, the knowledge that I'm imparting about, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or Caesarea stays the same, the people will forever keep it fresh to me because I can always interact with other souls. And that's that's something that is so, so valuable. Yeah. It's um, not so the knowledge you it contain, my it's the fact that you're you're creating a connection with people and having a relationship with the various people. And because people are people, you can't have the same relationship twice. Exactly. So the novelty, the novelty is always there. And novelty is something that we, that we count on for pleasure. That keeps you in the moment instead of just mm -hmm. going, here we are again at Nazareth. This is the thing. And this is the thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and there's something, um, extremely interesting about because then it's actually sustainable if you do something that is inherently going to um, make you face novel situations you're actually not going to build tolerance to it because if you build tolerance you need higher and higher doses it's going to take you someplace that's not healthy 
It's endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. Whatever you do should, Viola calls it, that's wonderful spiral. It just never is never ending. She said, mm -hmm. you know, this, she said this about her own work. She said, you know, I've played these games a thousand, thousand times and I've been playing them for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And because I play them with different people, the same game, it's endlessly interesting not you know it might be the same game and you might know certain outcomes but you're constantly surprised and you're constantly challenged and it's a constant spiral of finding your way deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and it's fantastic yeah so i want to touch on the on the like the non-coercive aspect of it right because you would say non-authoritarian yeah. Right, non-authoritarian, and say something which is, let's say you're now uh, a soldier or somebody who's on the ground who has a commander behind them, right? There, yeah. There's still novelty. You don't know where you're going to be sent and so <laughs> on. So what <laughs> differentiates that type of novelty when you're not in control well, as opposed to game. something? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe well, you know. Well, what, what, what if it? What if it? What if it was? What if you were acting in a in a show um, where you have to do what you're told, and somebody does know the outcome, but not you? It would still be novel for you, but do you think you would be in the same space as as well, doing improv? That means Presumably you're being, not. You're being manipulated by a, a higher person, right? Right. Uh, see. First of all, that's an interesting idea because authoritarian, we all live in an authoritarian culture. Yes. And uh, so Viola was saying that you can't consider yourself this, the dictator. Mm -hmm. um, you have to consider yourself a fellow player, maybe a fellow player with more experience maybe a fellow player with more uh, background and knowledge, but you're working with people who have less experience. But if you consider yourself a fellow player, your goal is to create a situation where they will solve the problem as a group. Mm -hmm. And a good leader, this is why Viola's work is very translatable to things like business and things like that. Uh, because when you create a, a, an effective team, mm -hmm. that team can solve a greater problem. But if you're mm -hmm. trying to make each person do a certain thing, you're not an effective leader. Right. So yeah, that, that... It, a, good, a good general does not tell his troops what to do, but gives his troops a problem to solve and lets them try to solve it. Mm. take that hill right don't you know he doesn't say you know drive up the the road in your tank and blow this guy up and blah 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 they they leave it to the guys on the ground to figure that out and that's why i think in the army uh um troops or soldiers become so connected to each other because they're 
they're they're working to solve the problem many problems the problem of of the assault but the problem of keeping each other safe the problem of working mm-hmm. together um and and trying to achieve a common goal all of those things are community building so yeah, authoritarianism you know, unfortunately when you know look what's happening in the world you get authority you know you get you get the governments telling people you know put on that headscarf uh, or we'll kill you right yeah yeah i i i agree and i think there's a so i think if we had to explicitly kind of point the finger at the thing that matters and the thing that makes the difference between um navigating an unknown terrain but with uh sovereignty and us being our own authority and not it's it's creativity right Absolutely, when it's, it's ta- creativity when it's, and that's when it's taken one of away the highest from goals isn't it uh, mm-hmm. and you can be creative as soldiers you can be mm-hmm. creative as generals but you all have to see yourself as part of a larger whole mm. and a dictator sees himself at the top with everybody below so already you have the stratification class systems whole cultures are built on the class system england mm-hmm. uh you know uh, india or even caste system yeah which is even more rigid and yeah absolutely because it's easier to control and mm-hmm. education unfortunately is not about learning as much as it is about controlling large groups of people right so control versus um i don't know what you would call it uh, the word yeah. escapes me but control versus yeah. um common spontane common mm-hmm. focus you know if everybody shares the same goal then and then are allowed to find their way toward that goal as a group now of course you're going to have people who want control and they will usually rise to become bosses or middle managers or people who want to tell you what to do they are the wrong people right. to be leaders yes yes absolutely well a lot of times i think about how you know my interest with living well the reason that i find it so helpful in my attempt to live well um is because it's abstract and it lacks a clear aesthetic of what it's going to look like whereas most of our culture really kind of gives you the main ingredients which are going to make your life good which is um have lots of money have a beautiful partner you know have this number of kids have this 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 and then people kind of rush all over the place to try and piece together the puzzle only to find out that this is not at all what actually and it was never <laughs> your idea to begin with you were just told exact. that exactly right So, right. you know, so it's good to be surprised. Again, we go back to the point. It's it's much better to keep an open mind about what even a desired outcome is and then of course get to the point where it is an outcome and see that it's just the starting point for something else. Yeah, it's 
it's a continual, you're on a continuum. You're, you're constantly trying to keep expanding that horizon um, rather than um, seek that, you know, you know, seek that result. Mm-hmm. And that's why, why do so many people, you know, uh, rise in society to the wealth and power and, and the, uh, all of the toys and kill themselves? Right. You know, some people, you know, it makes them happy, but, you know, it's just a false, it's a false, it's a false self. Again, we go back to what is the authentic self and the search mm-hmm. for that cannot, it can only be. You have to like you. You just have to discover it on your own, and that's a that's your own game to solve. You know. Yeah, I I'd like to hear you um, connecting this to maybe your thought about becoming the most average or the most or the most something because it sounds like from a young age you were aiming again at at a sort of a defined thing, something that will define you. Right. And then I was was living in a world where uh, people were expecting things from you, of you. Mm -hmm. And I was constantly just being disappointed. I mean, I was constantly disappointing. Right. The powers that be, i.e. my mother, you know, uh, who didn't love herself anyway. This is discovered in the end of the book, but... uh, uh, so the search for love and acceptance, acceptance is one thing, but love is the never ending horizon. Do you know? Mm. I mean, you know, every religious leader, Jesus said it, we've all said it, you know, love thy enemy, love thy neighbor, love thy oppressor. Well, you love them by not, um, becoming their puppet, their slave, their subject. Mm-hmm. But you have to um, transcend the, the situation and, and see something beyond that. Uh, that's why I named the land that he went into the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. And um, so he discovers... I don't want to give the, well, I'll give you, yeah, why not? Nobody's going to read this book anyway, but, um, well, I you, you don't say okay. that. but anyway, he discovers that, um, uh, he discovers that he, he loves despite everything, you know, because it's not about him. It's about, it's about helping others. And when you help others, the gift you give yourself is the fact that you, are helping becoming part of a larger whole. And uh, he meets, he meets his mother as a young child, his own age in this land and discovers Mm -hmm. the source of her hatred of him and, and loves her anyway. That's beautiful. So, in terms, in terms of the, the the process that you were going through, um, that was healing to you, was it just that you saw this thing that um, you needed to be the, the 
the best at some or the most something. Well, when he when he discovers slowly. the old king and why the old king disappeared, the old king of average, King Norman the mm -hmm. unexceptional. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm always trying to still make everybody laugh. <laughs> Uh, when he discovers well, uh, old habits die hard. Yeah. Well, yeah. no, it's, this is now the good part of it, you know, but King Norman, the right. unexceptional, he, he abandoned the throne because he couldn't, he couldn't be the most everything. And this so is what we're all trying to do. Throne. We're all having mm -hmm. these expectations. As a matter yeah. of fact, that's a land in the, uh, in the realm of possibilities, expectation. Or I call mm. it expectation. You, you land there as, you know, where the train takes you. Mm. And so that was dissipating over time as you were engaging more and more in play. Was it, um, um, was it an insight type of thing, an epiphany or was it a, a process <laughs> yeah, of? It's an epiphany. Um, mm -hmm. and that's, that's how all things come to you. All good creativity comes to you in a burst of in intuitive inspiration and that a game allows you to be in that state long enough for those things to happen to you wow yeah that's that's beautiful it really is beautiful so it transforms you viola has so many great sayings one of the great sayings is she said the creative act transforms the one who is in it Hmm. Yeah, I, I truly, I, I understand it. I think, uh, at this point, which I'm happy to say that I am, but yeah, you know, it's about taking things and really not aiming at any one state where you end up in a state, but see yourself as a, as a process, right? Well, it's, it's the process, but you, you, I mean, you can aim at a goal. But like what I did in my life, you know, I aimed at a goal of being in show business and mm -hmm. I didn't have another goal to replace it when I got to the mountaintop. Right, right. Then you go into this weird situation. So, you you know, uh, it's, a, it's a spiral. You have to find the next mountain to climb. And there's always mm -hmm. another one. And you should relish the fact that whether you get there or not, the journey is it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I thought this thing about, I have, uh, an acquaintance who's very, 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 very rich. Um, and you know, at least in one respect, he doesn't have to, to play a game we're playing of how to make a living, right? He's made it to some sort of top that most of us are dreaming about getting to, but then I, Notice that, of course, I knew this intellectually, but it's always interesting to see it firsthand that this does not guarantee you happiness in any way no. or form, right? And I realized that in a way, it's, it, it could be one of the worst things that could happen to a person that you actually have this dream of being filthy rich and then you go out there and then you, that you, found, you find that from a young age you had to climb up a mountain and sometimes you get tired and you wish you could just sit at the top of the mountain. But in fact, what happens that if you do indeed get to the top of the mountain, you find that there's actually a cliff so you have one step over and now you have to do something which you never had to do before, which is swim. And then 
you're in a completely different game and you don't even have as many people who are playing that game. So that's even scary. Yeah. Well, it's scary and not scary, but you know, the thing is, is if you, you know, if you reach what you think is the finish line, game over. <laughs> yeah. Game over. Let's play something else. Yeah. And so today as a, as a teacher, mostly, how do you view your role? I mean, obviously it's, it's doing good unto yourself and it's doing good unto others. Um, but is there any way that you've conceived of it or, I mean, it could like the, a good, a completely fair answer could be just, Hey, I'm just doing what feels good, which is, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm doing what feels good. Um, but it feels good because, um, when I play with other people or even when I teach and when I teach, I'm a side coach. I'm not the teacher. Uh, mm -hmm. I wrote a, wrote a blog called the rise of the guru. You know, guruism is a trap. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you have to kind of say, you know, um, I love to play. I love to be a fellow player. And if I can help you to play and play strongly, it helps me. I'm playing along with you. Um, we're both going to have a, a, a good time. And I'm continuing to expand everybody's awareness of this wonderful philosophy of Viola Spolins. It's a gift I think she gave me. I'm her protege. She's no longer here. I know her mm -hmm. granddaughter is teaching. I hope she teaches with the same wanting to do what I'm doing, which is expand everybody's horizon mm -hmm. through, through play and through being present and through um, what Krishnamurti calls right effort. Hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's, I think is, um, is what I ideally try to do with, uh, with dialectic as well. And I really like the model of not, not calling anything therapy in the sense that most uh, Western therapies are like in the sense that there is somebody who's a designated therapist, but more like, just as you say, uh, more of a mentor figure. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's somebody who might be more experienced and an apprentice who is less experienced, but, you know, wishing for your, uh, protege, as you say, to spread, spread their wings and be, and be out there soaring on their own and capable of supplying their own needs rather than always looking up to some sort of father yeah. or mother figure and looking for instruction. Yeah, that's really funny you say that, Viola. You know, when I had a breakthrough in 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 uh, my class with her, you know, and I really had a, a huge breakthrough. I wrote about it called my big breakthrough. The comment she said is she said, well, there you go. You stop trying to please mama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is 
such an important uh, epiphany to have, I think, on our, on our way to living well, for yeah. sure. Wow. Ayel, this was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, same here, Gary. I, I really appreciate you coming on, and um, this really illuminated a lot of a lot of different areas and kind of made it into a, a bigger light. And I'm really happy we we get to get it out there. So thank you very very much. My pleasure. It's it's great that you're a seeker like this. <laughs> I'm I'm intending on keep on going. So <laughs> until next time. <laughs> Absolutely. 